You're listening to the Jesus Culture Sacramento Message of the Week. We hope you enjoy this teaching from our guest speaker. For more information on our church, visit jcsacramento.com. Okay, I just want to share a little Jesus Culture testimony for just a moment. So last July, my husband and I host an event every single July. And the whole goal of the event is to raise funds so that we can give away our resources to people who cannot get it because of persecution or poverty. And to date, we've given away 17 million individual resources in 106 languages and 97 countries. So you know, you know Satan hates that. So it was getting ready to start. It was the Friday before our messenger couple, we raised all the funding, and I got a call from my lab. And my lab said, your breast cancer marker has gone from 12, which is normal, to 54. And I was like, well, what does that even mean? They said, you're in trouble when you hit 38. And they said, in the last four months, you've jumped from 12 to 54. And so I called my doctor and I was like, hey, the lab called me and said this. And she was like, oh yeah, no, don't, don't worry. She got me in like that day for a mammogram and we got the results the following Tuesday. But let me tell you what I did over the weekend. I drove in my car and I sang, you're a God of miracles. It's all, I sang and I sang and I sang your music over and over and over again. I called just a few friends that I knew who would pray and stand with me. But I believe that I am a testament that what is on this house is for the healing of the nations. I believe the songs that you sing will touch people when they're in the cars. And I was totally clear. And the next time they drew my blood, it had gone all the way back down to 24. So anyway, I believe that what is on your house is fighting, that I believe that the same anointing that you have sown into South Africa is going to come back here in strength. And it isn't just that the fire is going to go out, but the fire here is going to be kindled and quickened in the name of Jesus. So I'm honored. Okay, and can, I, can I tell you guys one other testimony I didn't tell anybody? Okay, I didn't tell anybody the other services because because uh, I have a little bit more time with you guys. Anyway, uh, I got to go to Sweden. When I was with Jesus Culture in Manchester, I popped over to Sweden and I heard the most amazing testimony. This church I was with in Sweden is taking in a lot of the refugees. And since you guys are going to be talking about Refugee Sunday, I want to tell you a little bit of a story. So there was a father and the Taliban came to him and said, we want your 12-year-old daughter to be my wife. And he said, listen, she's 12, please, please don't do this. And they said, we'll be back tomorrow. If you do not give me your daughter to be wife, I will kill you and your entire family. So the father didn't want to trouble his family. So he just began to pray and pray and pray. And he was like, Allah, I need your help. And he said, all of a sudden, he thought, I have prayed to Allah all my life. And nothing has ever gotten better. He said, I heard there is a Christian God who is love. And so he said, oh, Christian God, who is love? If you're real, can you save my daughter? And guess what? Jesus walked into his house, came as a man of white, walks into his house and said, I am Jesus. And he said, I will save your family, but you must flee. You must flee now. And he said, when you're hungry, I will feed you. When you're naked, I will clothe you. And so this man and his family fled in the night and they found themselves on those boats crossing from Turkey to Greece. And this church was standing on the shores yelling, if you're naked, we will clothe you. If you're hungry, we will feed you. 
believe that God is doing those kind of things. And this is the season that we're in. A season of miracles, a season of signs, a season of wonders, a season of things happening that will just astound the earth. And so I'm honored to be here and just speak into that because I am not content with what I've seen. When I hear those kind of things, I just get excited. I was like, that's great that that has happened in Sweden, but I want that to happen in Sacramento. I want that to happen in the United States of America. I want our media to have to shut its mouth because of the power of God being so evident that it is undeniable and that people will begin to preach the gospel that will surprise everybody. So I'm ready for that to happen. So I'm gonna show you my family real quick. I am a grandmother, but I'm not just any kind of grandmother. I am a Sicilian grandmother, which is not to be mistaken for an Italian grandmother. An Italian grandmother will feed you. A Sicilian grandmother might kill you because we have the mafia. Sicilians are Greeks, Arabs, and Italians mixed. That is our gift to the world. You're welcome. So anyway, I am a saved Sicilian, thank God. Do we have any saved Sicilians in here? Okay, we've got like, we have like four. Yes, we've got one here. We got two, two, okay. We got two, okay, anybody? Yes, one, okay. You've got, you guys have at least 15, I think, in your church, which means Jesus is coming back. Because seriously, when the Sicilians get saved, Jesus is coming back. So that is my world. I am holding my granddaughter Lizzie in that picture. And Lizzie, is, is a, she's a piece of work. She is a constant source of entertainment. Her mother will send me pictures of things that she said. Recently, she said, uh, is God my dad? And does he wear underwear? I mean, I was like, why would, why would those two things have to be paired together? She's incredibly random. We don't really know what goes on in her head. Uh, she also said, I, I had a bad dream that I went to jail for hitting people. And her mom says, sometimes dreams are warnings. I mean, she's just kind of out there. And when you have a granddaughter that basically is you, because that's what happened. I, I got the reprieve and had the four boys, thank God. But then Lizzie, you know, is basically all of my package, which is ridiculous, put together. And a four-year-old, you should write a children's story. So do I have any parents or grandparents here? Okay, awesome. Do you remember when your kids would come home from school? You tried to create amazing moments for them. Like, how was your day today? And they're like, fine. And then at dinner, you're like, let's all go around the table and talk about our favorite thing. My boys would be like, no, mom, we are not doing this for you. But then when you go to put them to bed, they want to unburden their soul. And you're like, I got nothing now. I have nothing. This is all a ploy to just make you stay up. So I wrote a book that actually has conversations in the back of a book because if you can read, you can talk. And it's actually the whole premise of the book is that sometimes the most courageous thing you can do is to ask for help. And we have a generation that's being told, be brave, be brave, be brave, but courage happens in community. And so that's out there. Do I have any grandmothers out there that said, I wanna get this for my ones? Okay, there you go. I'm throwing it at you, I'm so sorry. I just realized that, I realized it was a bad choice as it was in the air, sorry about that. I've had bulletproof coffee and espresso. Sorry about that. Okay, yay, I will not throw anything else. I'll gently put it down. Okay, so I am super excited about this message. I wrote a book called Adamant, Finding Truth in a Universe of Opinions. I wrote the book that I needed to read. How many of you know that we live in a time period 
where people are telling us that truth is a river, that truth ebbs and flows with the passage of time. And we're also being told that you have your truth, I have my truth, you have your truth. But here's the thing, that's not truth. There's something that's true of me, like what is true of me now is I have four grandkids. What I hope will be true of me in five years is that I have 10. So true of changes, but truth is eternal. And truth is ancient, and truth does not move. And truth is not a river, truth is a rock. And truth is not a who, I mean it's not a what, it is a who. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he said no one comes to the Father except by me. And you say, well, I don't believe that God would be that exclusive. Well, he says, come. He says, come to everyone. He just says that the way is narrow and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And so I want to talk to you about something I feel like is very important for our day and our time. And I'm going to cover three points. I'm going to cover the reality of our God, the reality of our day, and the reality of us. And because I'm Sicilian, I'm going to go to the book of Romans to unpack this. First, I'm going to open with the reality of our God. Romans 1, 19. I'm going to read it out of the message because I think it really brings it home. It says, but the basic reality of God is plain enough. Open your eyes and there it is. By taking a long and thoughtful look at what God has created, people have always been able to see what their eyes as such can't see. Eternal power, for instance, and the mystery of his divine being. So nobody has a good excuse. What is this telling us? It's telling us that if you look at the mountains, if you look at the stars, if you look at the ocean, if you look at all these babies you guys keep producing in this church, if you look at the wonder of those things, that the wonder of those things actually speaks to the longing in you for something more than what you've seen. Everything we can see declares the existence of the unseen. That is the reality of our God. All creation reveals the glory of God. But this is what we have to do to see that we have to actually pause and ponder. And if you pause and ponder and take that long and thoughtful look, I step back and I think, what the heck is going on? Do you feel that way? I'm like, in the last five years, people have gone crazy. Up is down, right is wrong, left is right. This is everything has been turned on its head. There's no sacred boundaries. Everybody has their right, their truth, their experience. Well, it's really your story. But at the end of the day, we've got to say, is God a reality or is he just an idea? When I step back, I'm like, I don't know what happened. And God's like, I'm glad you're asking because the very next verse in Romans explained what happened. It says, what happened was this. People knew God perfectly well, but when they didn't treat him like God, refusing to worship him, they trivialized themselves into silliness and confusion so that there was neither sense nor direction left in their lives. They pretended to know it all, but they were illiterate regarding life. Do you know we're not doing life well? We're not doing marriage well. We're not doing family well. We're not doing brotherhood well. We're not doing sisterhood well. We're not doing our nation well. The things that were meant to unite us are now dividing us. We're not doing violence well. We have a lot of things that we are illiterate regarding life. 
But it doesn't begin because we're stupid. It begins because when a nation refuses to worship God. See, it's one thing to acknowledge God, but it's another thing to worship God. Worshiping God means that I bow the knee of my opinion to his word. Worshiping God means that his ways are higher than my ways. Worshiping God for me, an ENFP, you know what an ENFP is? It's a nerve ending. You know what an ENFP also is? It's an Enneagram. It is the most ridiculous personality you could ever have. I want everybody right, everybody to win. I pass money under the table during the Monopoly games. Okay, I, but here's the thing. Telling somebody a lie is truth doesn't make them win. And what we've done in the church is we have not necessarily spoken the truth in love. And so we have a whole generation that is out there trying to figure things out. They acknowledge God, but they worship themselves. Their ideals, their thoughts, their culture. He goes on to say they traded the glory of God who holds the whole world in his hands for cheap figurines you can buy at any roadside. So God said, in effect, America, if that's what you want, that's what you get. It wasn't long before they were living in a pig pen smeared with filth, filthy inside and out. And all this because our nation traded the true God for a fake God and worshiped the God they made instead of the God who made them, the God we bless, the God who blesses us. Oh, yes. And then it goes on, it says, worse followed, refusing to know God. We can only know him through worship, not acknowledging him. Refusing to know God, they soon didn't know how to be human either. Women didn't know how to be women, and men didn't know how to be men. It's the reality of our day. I'm in Colorado, and in Colorado and Boulder, they're actually asking middle-aged students to self-identify. Does anybody remember what middle school felt like? Do you remember middle school? It was the most awkward time period of my life. If somebody had said, you need to self-identify, I would have said, I'm a unicorn. I'm a mythical creature. I have no idea what I am. You do not ask people who are going from boy to man or girl to woman to self-identify. You protect them. We need to actually surround our children and push them into the presence of God because our culture is trying to sexualize our children. It is normal to have same-sex curiosity. I was like, why are my breasts not growing? I didn't care what was going on with the boys. I was trying to figure out what was going on with me. And we need to protect them while they are going through changes, not make them identify themselves when they're in transition. But this is what's going on when we have a culture that is oversaturated with sexual things and starving for intimacy. People are trying to heal themselves. They think, if I just change my gender or if I just have this relationship or that relationship or that drug or that high or that experience. I remember when God came to me and said, Lisa, how many men have to hold you before you finally feel whole? See, we get whole in the presence of God. But if we don't exemplify that wholeness to them, if we don't exemplify holy to them, because you know holy actually means whole. God is holy in all that he is, and we, we're called to be holy in all we do. 
It goes on to say, sexually confused, they abused and defiled one another. Women with women, men with men, all lust and no love. And then they paid for it. Oh, how they paid for it. Emptied of God and love. Godless and loveless wretches. Now I want to step back a moment. God is never the one who makes us pay. Never. He says, I set before you life, death, blessing, cursing. Choose life that you and your children would live. God is always saying to you, listen, even now declares the Lord, if you return to me with all your heart, I will take what you have as nothing. I will give you all that you build. You built your life on, I'll expose it as empty, but I'll give you the richest feast. This is what our God does. We drink from unfaithful streams, and he says, I'll give you living water. We build our lives on houses that topple under pressure, and he says, I'm going to build you a mansion in heaven. We need to actually be able to make this exchange in our life, because what we're having right now is we're preaching the truth without love, and that's harsh, but love without truth is a lie. And so we have to be able to merge both truth and love by the power of the Holy Spirit and the transformation in our lives. And then Romans 1, 20 go, 28 goes on. And again, I'm talking about the reality of our day. Since they didn't bother to acknowledge God, God quit bothering them and let them run loose. And it says, and all hell broke out. All hell broke loose. Rampant evil, grabbing, grasping, vicious backstabbing. They made life hell on earth with their envy, wanton killing, bickering, and cheating. Look at them, mean-spirited, venomous, fork-tongued, God-bashers, bullies, swaggers, insufferable windbags. They keep inventing ways of wrecking lives. They ditch their parents when they get in the way, stupid, slimy, cruel, cold-blooded, and it's not as if they don't know better. They know perfectly well they're spitting in God's face, and they don't care. Worse, they hand out prizes to those who do the worst things best. That is the reality of our culture right now. But let's talk about the reality of us. Because Romans continues in Romans chapter two, verse one, it says, those people are on a dark spiral downward. But if you think that leaves you on the high ground where you can point your finger at others, think again. Every time you criticize someone, you condemn yourself. It takes one to know one. Judgmental criticism of others is a well-known way of escaping detection in your own crimes and misdemeanors. But God isn't so easily diverted. He sees right through all such smoke screens and holds you to what you have done. You didn't think, did you, that just by pointing your fingers at others, you would distract God from seeing all your misdoings and from coming down on you hard. What are some of the misdoings of the church? Well, I could say gossip. I could say competition. I could say envy. I could say slander. I could say not preaching the whole gospel. I could say that there's a, some stuff going on in our lives where we're actually saying that grace is a license for sin. What are we, what are we going to do? Because I believe that there is something more. I believe that it's God asking for us to sanctify ourselves. This isn't about salvation. This is about consecration. It's about creating room for the Spirit of God in our lives so that the Spirit of God can distinguish His people, so that there is a power on our lives that not only brings transformation for us, but brings transformation for other people. It goes on to say, you didn't think, did you, that just by pointing your fingers at others, you would distract God from seeing your misdoings and from coming down on you hard? Or did you think that because He is such a nice God, He'd let you off the hook? Better think this one through from the beginning. God is kind, but He is not soft. In kindness, He takes us 
firmly by the hand and leads us into a radical life change. So here's the, ra- here's the reality of us. I'm going to talk to you about the day God took me firmly by the hand. I was 21 years of age, came from a family that was highly dysfunctional. My grandmother was married four times. My father was the child of refugees from Sicily. He was an alcoholic. He was an adulterer. My parents were married, divorced, remarried. I found myself in a very, very broken place. I tried to fill it with alcohol. I tried to fill it with promiscuity. But at 21, I heard for the very first time that Jesus loved me. I heard for the very first time that Jesus had died to forgive me. And the man who shared that gospel with me is now my husband. On my very first date with John Bevere, I got born again, filled with the Holy Spirit, and healed. So anybody that does all that on the first date, you might as well marry him. I spent about an hour and a half that night looking for the book of Paul, because John said, Paul said this, and Paul said that, and I didn't know any book in the Bible. I had a way New Testament. I stood on its spine. I was like, God, if you're real, can you help me find this book of Paul? And if it opened up to Corinthians, it says, if any man be in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, everything comes new. I was like, oh my gosh, I found the book of Paul. I found the book of Paul. I was so excited. But John knew I was a piece of work. So he equipped me with two things. He made me a suitcase of cassette tapes. Yeah, we're that old. John turned 59 yesterday, so that's exciting. I turned 58 June 6th. Anyway, so he made me this cassette tapes, and he's like, you need to listen to every single one of these tapes. But I didn't just listen to them. I cranked them up so loud that I could pray in tongues while I listened to them. And I drove from West Lafayette, Indiana to Tucson, Arizona, where I went to college, praying in the spirit and listening to preachers the whole way. When I arrived at my sorority house at 1050 North Mountain, I walked in, I was like, hey, I'm here. And everybody's like, yay, Toscano's here. That's my maiden name. And they said, now we can party. And I'm like, nope, I'm born again. They were like, crap, you got to be kidding me. You can't be born again. You were the worst. We elected you to be the marshal. What's the marshal? It's the person in charge of hazing and initiation rituals. You are chosen on one basis, meanness. So they had picked me for the meanness factor. And I said, guys, I'm not, I'm not going to haze the freshman. I'm a Christian now. I said, if you don't like that, I can be the chaplain. They were like, no, we're not going to make you the chaplain. The second thing John had told me, he was saying, you need to read your Bible out loud. So I remember sitting in my sorority house, in my little room, reading my Bible out loud. Have any of you ever read a Bible out loud when you are in close proximity of demon-possessed people? Because you will get a reaction. All of a sudden, I'm just reading my little King James, not like yelling it, just reading it out loud, and I hear boom, 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 boom. Someone knocks on my door. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I open it. And one of my sorority sisters is standing there and she's like, stop it. And I was like, demons are real. Demons are real. It's really happening. Demons are real. But did I stop reading my Bible because it bothered one of my sorority sisters? Oh, no. But I did want to be respectful. So what I did is I climbed the fire escape and sat on the rooftop of my sorority and I read the word of God out loud over my sorority, over my campus. I prayed it over my life, the future life that I would have. Why? Why was I so crazy? Because God 
had taken me firmly by the hand and led me into a radical life transformation. John didn't preach to me about Jesus as Savior. He preached to me about Jesus the Lord. And I understood in that moment that my life was no longer my own, that I had been bought with a price. And from that moment forward, everything in my life was going to be going a different direction. I began to walk the halls at night. And I would put my hands on either side of the walls. And I would call my sorority sisters out of a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light, calling them out by name. And when you begin to do that, you start to have other knocks on your doors. I remember a young girl came and knocked on my door and she said, we heard you used to be wild. We heard you used to be mean. We heard you used to be a hoe. And now you're like the big Christian in the house. We don't know how this happened, but we want whatever it is you have. We need to be those kind of people that people can see beyond our past and grab a hold of the transformation in our life. And so I was like, I don't even know what, I'm not even sure what to do. I said, can you come in and sit down? And then I had a campus crusade track and I made her read and repeat the entire track to get born again. And then the presence of God began to fill my room. And she was like, what am I feeling right now? I said, that's the Holy Spirit. And I said, okay, you're probably going to need this, but it's going to get me in trouble. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues. That doesn't necessarily go over well in a sorority house, but she got filled with the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues. Then God started giving me words of knowledge and words of wisdom from my different sororities, sisters. And I got called in front of standards. The president and the vice president sat me down. They're like, you need to calm this Christian thing down. They're like, we're Christians. Do you see us acting like you? I was like, wait a minute. You're Christians? You came into my room on Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings and asked me to unpack my drunken escapades from the night before? You knew I was wrecking my life and you never once told me about Jesus. You knew I was desperate for something and you never said anything. See, when God has taken you firmly by the hand and led you into a radical life transformation, you're going to make sure that hurting people experience the same kind of radical life transformation. And then I remember the very first time I, I got to preach. It, it came at a very unexpected moment. I don't know how I chose a major. I think I was like, what sounds impressive in conversation? What's your major? Oh, international economics. That's what I picked. I mean, it like sounded really good my freshman and sophomore year. By my junior year, it wasn't sounding quite so good because the classes started getting hard. My senior year, I was like, I'm in trouble. I remember the professors were like, we're going to weed out the week. So they gave, I don't know if it was a midterm or a final, but they gave Fortran, which is not even a real thing. I just want you to know. Uh, tax accounting and stats all on the same day. Well, I was not good with Fortran, so one of my sorority sisters was studying that, and somebody else was doing stats, and I think I was doing the tax accounting, which is a joke. But anyway, we were all there proctoring each other. We pulled an all-nighter. We're shaking on Vivran and no-dose. We're just like trying to memorize things when one of my sorority sisters, who had chosen her major wisely, the, probably the major I should have had, 
raising four boys, elementary education, she came in and she was like, oh my gosh, you all look awful. And I was like, thank you. You need to move on. You need to like, go get your breakfast or something. We're not, we're not talking. We're, we're like studying here. And she's like, Toscano, you look like you've been run over by a car. And I don't know what happened, but it was like the unregenerated half Sicilian part of me began to tremble like a volcano in my being. And I remember before I knew what happened, it came out of my mouth. And I said, Kelly, why are you such a beep in the morning? And the whole breakfast room froze because the born again had cussed. And I had not cussed for four months. Now, before that, I cussed all the time. It was how I formed sentences. But for the last four months, I have saying, praise the Lord, instead of cussing. I'd cuss in my head, praise the Lord out of my mouth. But that day, I don't know if it was the vibrant, it just came out. And everybody didn't know what to do, except for she knew what to do. She pointed her fingers at me, and she said, I knew there was no way you could have ever gotten born again. You're just too bad. And stormed out of the room, and everybody now, again, doesn't know what to do. My, my roommate grabs my arm, and she said, I was just about ready to say the same thing. And I was like, I wish you would have. But anyway, I stood up, and I looked at all of my sorority sisters, about 40, 45 of them in there. And I said... I owe all of you an apology. I am completely out of line. And you know what? They said that's actually when they knew I was born again. Because see, they didn't see me walk in the halls. They didn't hear me praying in tongues in the shower. They didn't see me reading my Bible on the roof. But for the very first time, they saw me humble myself. Here's the truth. We're all going to make mistakes. But we're not allowed to make excuses. And the world out there actually knows what we should be doing sometimes even more than we know what we should be doing. We need to bless those that curse us. We need to love those who don't deserve to be loved. We need to actually be adamantly, invincibly transformed. We need to be a people who are immovable, who are constant. And when we fall short, we humble ourselves and apologize. I believe that God is looking to the church right now. The church, we have this promise. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, seek my face, pray, and do what? Turn from their own wicked ways. We are so busy trying to turn everybody else from their wicked ways that we have forgotten. We don't have to do that. We just have to do this. We just have to deal with the shadowed places in our own lives, that competition, that envy, that jealousy, that lust, whatever is going on in our own lives. God is asking us to deal with it because I believe that God wants to pour out his power in and through his people in an unprecedented way. But we cannot allow the shadow realm to live in our heart. You know, there's a, a lot of things that I love about God. I love that our God's love for us is invincible. He says that he is adamant in love with us. That means his love for us is invincible. He's also adamant that we love one another. But this same God who is adamant in love is also adamant in hate. And I know that sounds a little scary because it scared me. When I had written the first five chapters of my book, I closed out that chapter that God was adamant that we love each other. And he said, but I am also adamant in hate. And I was like, whoa. So I took Proverbs 6 
and I cut and paste it into a document, rode my bicycle back to the house filled with 11 people that should only probably had four in it where we were doing vacation. And uh, I, had a, I had a text message from a Messianic rabbi. And he said, the Holy Spirit told me you're writing right now. And he said, whatever you just touched on is the reason why an entire generation has been immunized against truth. And so I wrote him back and I said, adamant and hate, question mark. And he wrote me all these Hebrew words, Shamir and all this stuff. And I thought, you know what, I'll just think about it tomorrow. So I got up the next morning and I said, God, how can you who are love hate? I need, to, I, don't, I need you to help me with that. And he said, I hate what unmakes love. He said, I hate what unmakes those I love. He said, I hate what undermines my image and distorts yours. Like, for example, God hates pride. Why does God hate pride? Because pride makes him have to resist us. God graces the humble and resists the pride. So why would he hate that? Because it separates us from him. C.S. Lewis said that pride is a spiritual cancer. God also hates what ends up breaking people's hearts. God says, I hate divorce. Do you know he says that? He doesn't say, I hate divorced people. He said, I hate divorce. Why does he say that? It says, because it overwhelms a woman with cruelty. And God was a loving husband. So he's like, I don't want my daughters overwhelmed with cruelty. Now we know that women can initiate divorce. But he also said, it takes two people that are one and tears them. So it's not that he hates the people. He hates it when it doesn't work out because he is a faithful husband and a loving father. All Christians hate sex trafficking. I've never met anybody that says, I, I'm, I'm okay with sex trafficking. But do we hate the seed of sex trafficking to the same level that we hate sex trafficking? Because the seed of sex trafficking is pornography. And more and more, pornography is weaving its way into even Netflix. It is going to be there. And what happens is, we got to make sure we're not entertained with the shadow that ends up being the substance in somebody else's life. And so we can actually take back the purity and we can say, God, I want to hate what you hate. Notice I said what? Because what God hates is always about protecting who God loves. God loves everyone, which means he can't love everything. So we have to be a people who say, we're going to love who God loves and we're going to hate what God hates. And that is going to be an interesting line for us to walk. We're going to have to walk with both love and truth. And we're going to have to be led and filled with the Holy Spirit. Because being led and filled with the Holy Spirit is the only way we can navigate truth and love in this universe of opinions. So, I wrote a book, Adamant, Finding Truth in a Universe of Opinions. I believe there are people that are desperate for the refuge of the truth that you carry. I believe there are people that want to believe there is something unchanging, there is something solid, that there is an unassailable sanctuary, and that they could know the truth, and the truth would set them free. So I want it to begin with me. I want to deal with any shattered place in my life. I want to deal with any place where I have marginalized the power of God to transform me. So I want you to stand to your feet, and I'm going to pray over you because I've, I saw how you reacted when you heard about what's happening with the refugees, and I know that you're supposed to be standard bearers of both truth and the power of God. So lift up your hand and say, Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father I'm, ready. I'm ready. Take me firmly by the hand, me firmly by the hand. And, lead me and lead me into a life, into a life 
of radical change. I want to know you in every area of my life. And I want to make you known. I want your power and your presence and your virtue to be so evident in my life that people are drawn to your light. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks for listening to the message of the week. Hungry for more? Search Jesus Culture on your podcast platforms to check out more from our Jesus Culture podcast network.